Hi there, this is James just popping in with a quick message before the show begins. In this episode, Emma Sue does an interview with Dr. Jack Lewis. And the interview was so interesting. What we've decided to do is divide it into two parts. So today you're going to hear Emma Sue and I uh, introduce the, the interview and then you'll hear part one. And then in a few days from now, we'll be back with part two. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to Seven Skills for the Future podcast. My name is Emma Sue Prince, and this podcast is based on the internationally selling book by the same name. This book focuses on seven important skills. They are adaptability, critical thinking, empathy, integrity, being proactive, being optimistic, and being resilient. And this podcast is all about how you can bring these skills into your everyday life so that you are living a life full of happiness, full of purpose, great relationships, doing work that you love, and just really getting the most out of life. Hello and welcome back to the podcast and I'm joined today by my producer James. Hi Emma and hello everyone. So on today's episode Emma we have another interview. Who have you been speaking to for today's episode? So today I'm speaking to Dr Jack Lewis and Jack Lewis is a neuroscientist and he works in broadcasting and consultancy. So he's done lots of science related series for the BBC, Sky and Discovery. And he's an author, of course. He's written a book called Sort Your Brain Out, which is a book that I reference in my critical thinking chapter. And he's also a consultant. So he consults with uh, a lot of different companies, bringing in a neuroscience informed perspective and working with companies ranging from finance to pharmaceuticals, technology to design. Very talented guy. Wow. Amazing. Uh, so what can our listeners expect to learn from Jack today? Well, loads. I mean, it's like going to a, a great, great lecture um, and just learning all the most important things. He's just full of wisdom and insight and lots of humor, you know, and he um, he's going to be telling us about um, how we can free up space in our brains to be creative. He talks about how brainstorming is actually the wrong way to approach getting lots and lots of ideas um and interestingly he he also references mindfulness and meditation and he's a huge he was a huge skeptic um so he's kind of like a convert to uh meditation and mindfulness practice which is quite interesting um so yeah just a really interesting guy and i think our listeners are going to love it so that sounds really fascinating Yes, I think so. So let's listen to the interview with Dr. Jack Lewis. So Jack, hi, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Thank you very much indeed. So of course I want to hear all about your take on critical thinking, obviously. So far away. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, right. So broad ranging, I like it. Yeah. So, um, from a neuroscience perspective, one of the most interesting things that that I've kind of come across in recent times 
to that, that a thing that helps people improve their critical thinking is is the sort of concept of embodiment of cognition. So it's not just all in our brains. A lot of our deep knowledge is attached somewhat to our movement. And it sounds ridiculous, but you know, there's this concept of the facial feedback hypothesis, just sort of background, that if you pull a certain facial expression, at the moment your body feels that your face is in that kind of muscular composition, it triggers lots of kind of unconscious memories of times in your life where you had a similar kind of uh, combination of feelings like when you have that expression on your face it reminds you of those happy feelings of the past and then that causes these other happiness feelings to, to come through you know so hence when you're on the phone talking to clients pull a smiling face even if you're not feeling happy and people often think that's because when you talk through a smiling face it can't it changes the kind of uh, the sound of your voice which then has that effect on the other person they hear a happy voice it reminds them of happy times and puts them in a positive mind but it goes beyond that it's it's actually that when you speak through a smiling facial expression, the other person is more likely to pull a, a happier facial expression themselves, and then that filters how they understand the information you are communicating to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so that's sort of step one. Step two, the, the more recent, I mean, that's 60s stuff, that's, okay. that's a long, long time ago. But uh, this new stuff is much more about, like, sort of gestures, for example. And there was one study showing that where pe people came up with, with a greater range of interesting ideas, and those ideas were independently rated as being more um, kind, of, kind of creative, mm -hmm. like, like uh, unusual, innovative. Um, when people had performed a fluid motion with their arm, sort of with... with Kind of your hand, you know, it's a podcast, so I have to describe what I'm doing. <laughs> your hand going from the left side of your body to the right side of your body, and then it arcs round again, arcs round again. So they had people doing that, basically drawing big wide uh, pencil strokes on, on a pad of paper. And then they had another one with a very similar trajectory, but it was angular, angled edges, so the movements you were performing were jerky. And, and, and indeed, the, the curving movements, the more fluid movements, led to more fluid thinking. So obviously, when it comes to critical thinking, the first thing is to kind of generate a lot of ideas related yeah. to the problem you're trying to deal with and, and then and then the critical bit comes later once you've got a list of say 20 excellent ideas having performed fluid gestures compared to 12 fairly ropey ideas having performed jerky gestures um, you then come to the critical phase of being brutal in your analysis of whether or not they, they have any you know they're going to hold any water you do a full SWOT analysis on each individual one mm -hmm. and then you can figure out which thing is worth pursuing um, but so it's, it's kind of the pre-critical thinking stage I, I find it fascinating as someone who initially resisted this concept of of, uh, of embodiment of cognition because it sounded too airy fairy that you know if we perform expressive dances it will mm. not just change it not just filter the way we see the world and consider various concepts but actually change the way we mm. think of them on a fundamental level but you know the, re the research that's emerged over the last 10 years has actually convinced me that that that, that is a good step mm -hmm. and then when it comes to the critical phase of it it's funny because we're such uh, social animals that quite often we struggle to be as critical with each other's ideas as we should be because you don't want to go offending someone especially especially this country <laughs> absolutely yeah. um, and so I encourage people not to brainstorm um, to do something which I mentioned in the book sort your brain out the brain yeah. shake which is same same but different in as much as the traditional concept of a brainstorm is there's no such thing as bad idea. Say anything you like. There's no criticism here. You know, we should just have. You should feel completely free to talk about anything and don't worry about it. The main error there is the lack of criticism, because you need that criticism. 
And because we're such social animals, we're very reluctant, perhaps logically, to criticise the boss's ideas, mm. for example. Uh, the boss's ideas will always tend to get a bit more airtime, just out of politeness by the minions. <laughs> um, and that's no good for moving forward. You cannot think critically about something if you're simultaneously antagonised by the need to maintain your your, your, your reputation and your order in the pecking order and so forth. So I, you know, the, the, the basic idea of Brain Shake is that you, and it's not I just rebranded someone else's idea. I read the evidence that suggested you need criticism and it's very helpful if you can divorce ideas from their originators. Because that way the whole social, you know, the, the social game becomes divorced from a, a, a blunt objective analysis of whether the idea is good or bad. And in order to get that aspect out of it, the final stage of this brain shape thing is to divide the room into two halves at random, get one, in, and basically debate it in a very old fashioned way, come up with arguments five, ten minutes arguing for it, another team arguing against it. And you want to be, you want to, you're hoping by randomising that you're going to get a four-team composed of people, roughly 50-50, who genuinely do like the idea and instantly back it, but then hopefully 50% of people who hate the idea, yet have to reluctantly come up with ideas to argue, uh, find, find arguments for it from a sceptical viewpoint and then vice versa on the against team you've got people that gen genuinely hate the idea so it's coming from the heart when they find uh, arguments against but you want also people to, who actually love the idea to then take that mindset of being critical about it the beauty of this situation is that you get like all possible perspectives on the problem enthusiastic support enthusiastic denial and vice versa um, and so then, you know, that brings you into a realm where, as a group, your critical thinking is really, you're benefiting from the wisdom of the crowd, you know? Mm -hmm. One brain is often brilliant when they get to expert level in something uh, at figuring things out, but it's never as good as, as a team effort. So that whole process you're describing, um, do organisations follow that? Are they using that as a kind of mm. way of getting but, to their ideas? I don't know if they all are, but my experience... Um, that is relevant to that is I often get rebookings and it's, it's always lovely when I give a talk and I sort of talk about these kind of things um, uh, when they say hey would you come back in six months time would you come back in a year's time and that gives me the opportunity to then see so how's it, how's it gone mm. you know since I since we did this workshop of doing the brain, brain shape how does this how does this all work for you and so um, I went out to Germany for, B, for ITV Global, Global who are now a global company we think of them as being British but they've bought major studios all over the planet and they got all of their heads of development and creative people to come for a summer workshop. Uh, summer in Germany, I think it was Munich. <clears throat> and yeah, so the host was the MD of ITV Germany. And so I did that talk with the global mob. And then I came back again six months later because they said, hey, will you do it just for the German team? You know, Germany ITV, will you come and give it for us? So that was amazing because I got to speak to the head of development and, and you know, him and the MD had heard it before, but the other 50 people hadn't. And he said, yeah, we've been using it for the last six months and our hit rate, as in developing an idea and getting to the point of it getting produced, actually the TV program being made and airing, it, it, it's gone up. And the ideas are considered more original. And mm. so in a creative industry, they found that their already well-honed raw creative potential was Im improved yet further mm -hmm. by using this. Now, of course, that's very anecdotal. But as I mentioned, I was basing the idea in the first place of sort of 
encouraging people to take this approach, it was on the basis of uh, research yes. that I found yes. in the literature originally. So whilst it's anecdotal, it's reconfirming stuff that is yeah. in the academic literature. Yeah, yeah. I really think it's interesting what you said at the beginning about the, the connection with the body and mm. generating um, lots and lots of ideas, but using your body... But, you know, using body movements like mm. that, that obviously triggers something in the brain because I think when we think it's possible when we think of critical thinking to just be thinking of it as all in our heads absolutely yeah I mean and, and also just with intelligence in general like if you look at the components of IQ so a short word on IQ. Whilst it's very popular and it has brilliant predictive power, um, you know, it's supposed to be something which stays the same your whole life. Like in its original conception, that was the idea. Yet every 10 years, people's IQ on average is going up and up and up. Um, so hang on, the original theory is wrong, so why are we still hanging on to this thing? It also doesn't capture every dimension of intelligence. You know, it was conceived in, in the middle of the last century, so it's a pretty old concept. But it does predict very well how well people will be doing 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, according to traditional parameters like level of educational attainment and the amount of money you're earning. But if, anyway, with that caveat <laughs> uh, dealt with, IQ is interesting because it talks about the two different types of intelligence, like fluid intelligence, which lends itself to kind of problem solving and creative thinking, and then the crystalline intelligence, which is much more the sort of the database of knowledge that you've accumulated in, in your life so far about how to do things, about the capitals of countries, about you know, your, your sort of general knowledge uh, and your specific knowledge about your area of expertise. And so, you know, it's it's pretty Cartesian, you know, let's hey, let's divide everything into two and put it on different axes. So when you take that approach, it helps you to understand the basics of it, but it also blurs your perspective on what the real situation is in as much as it's always a grace, you know, a series of greys. Um, it's not black and white. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, so, but I still think it's interesting to consider that if you can improve someone's working memory, so that's, mm -hmm. if I tell you that my childhood phone number was... 01-997-6543 your capacity to hold that number in mind uh, for long enough to say grab a pen and jot it down that's your auditory working memory giving you a buffer to hold info in mind you can do the same thing with visual things if I held up like a noughts and crosses board with, mm -hmm. with seven of the hang on, there's only six spots that's not the word <laughs> five of the six filled in I could take it away you could probably reproduce where the noughts and crosses were on that board um, so that's your visual uh, working memory, visual spatial scratch pad, it's often called. Uh, these two things are adaptable. Mm -hmm. These two things can be grown through practice in specific kind of exercises. And if you improve a person's working memory, if they do an IQ test before and after the training, you find that their IQ score goes mm -hmm. up. And that's because the fluid intelligence part of the IQ measurement improves. So your ability to do, for example, Raven's matrices, sort of, you know, what's the next thing in this sequence? And then the sequence becomes mm. increasingly complex. Like if it goes from a circle, hang on, wait, what would it be? To, from a triangle to a square to a pentagon, which of these three objects is next? Oh, it's the hexagon, you know, the six-sided thing. And there's always, so, so that sort of logical sequence mm. aspect of fluid thinking improves if you can hold more different parameters in mind, you know? So I find that tremendously exciting that once you improve your working memory, all of cognition improves, mm -hmm. including your critical thinking, mm -hmm. your, your capacity to take multiple perspectives on the problem at hand and 
evaluate its positives and its drawbacks. Um, and, and yeah, so if, if your listeners are interested, the game in question is ugly. It's free to download onto your PC uh, or Mac. Uh, I think it's the, the, if you search for Brain Workshop, yeah. it's called the Dual Enback Test. D U A L. Yes, that's in the book. Oh, is it great? Yeah. Okay, so you know no, about as a way to as a way to train your brain. Yeah. yeah, and working memory. And, and you know, all the brain training apps yeah. don't have much published evidence to prove a, a bona fide improvement in something that's relevant mm. to real life. You get mm. better at the games, but that far transfer from improvements in the game into real life are, are few and far between. But, um, you know, the evidence is contested, mm. as it always is. Some people have tried to reproduce the findings of the original authors and they succeeded, others haven't. Mm-hmm. But I saw enough in the literature to, to think... This is great. This this offers the promise that if you train up specific aspects of your cognition, then other aspects of mm-hmm. your cognitive power improve without any further intervention, and that is a powerful offer. That you know, I think yeah. that's worth pursuing. Yeah, and I mean, there's also we read a lot of information about the neuroscience of the brain, and our brains are plastic, and they're, they're changing all the time, and. I mean, what can you tell us about about that? Yeah, so neuroplasticity is, without a shadow of a doubt, for me, the most sort of inspiring and wonderful contribution that neuroscience has made in in the last kind of 20 years. So your listeners have probably heard about the experiment that proved that adults can indeed change their brains according to what they do. The older, you know, scanning the drivers of London's black cabs before and after they've done the knowledge... 20,000 major routes, 25,000 landmarks within six, uh, six miles radius of central London. So it's an incredible feat of memory. It takes about 2.2 years to complete. And if you compare before and after, the part of the brain that gets bigger is the hippocampus, the mm-hmm. rearmost part. And the hippocampus is involved in creating memories, but it's also involved in navigation, because how else would you navigate mm-hmm. if you didn't have some kind of memory of either having travelled that route before or having a map? Uh, memorized and rehearsed and practiced down on the ground for real Um, but people then tend to stop there and think okay so you can improve your memory end of story but no the original suspicion came from people comparing the brain scans MRI structural brain scans of professional musicians to amateurs um, the part of the brain, can, uh, the part of the motor strip, which each has different patches, which are connected to different uh, parts of the mm-hmm. skeletal muscles, the part that governed hand and finger movements was physically larger in the pros compared to the amateurs. So it's not just the hippocampus where you can improve your navigational abilities, it's your finger movements so you can play music better if you've trained sufficiently. Um, and, and, and go, you know, I think. Mm. Uh, I'm not entirely sure about this one because it's, it's newer, but I think they've scanned medics before and after and found that the repository of that medical knowledge, not all of it, you know, crudely, uh, if you've got a deep expertise in a certain area, certain parts of the prefrontal mm. cortex will, will change accordingly. Uh, you have people who are like meditators where part of the prefrontal cortex involved, which has direct connections to the uh, anterior cingulate cortex which is involved in generating feelings of being disconcerted or anxious or like you know there's some kind of disharmony in in your thoughts uh, conflicting ideas that you just can't get it settled experienced meditators have a bigger structure in this brain area which has the power to feed in and dampen Mm -hmm. those anxious feelings and it's very much involved in resilience which I know is covered in your book Uh, resilient kids naturally have a very strong pathway Mm. non-resilient kids who for whom really intense stress is debilitating for them and leads to mental health issues. If you look at that pathway, it is weaker. It has been weakened by the stress they've endured in childhood. So 
So the point I'm making is neuroplasticity is really exciting because it doesn't matter what you do, so long as you do it regularly, intensively, and keep it up over long periods of time, it has the capacity to change the fabric of your brain. So what sort of things, what sort of things should we be doing? Well, if you want to improve your ability to emotionally self-regulate, you should be meditating yeah. for 15 to 20 minutes every single day. And that's not the only benefit, huge benefits, that actually just training yourself to when you decide I'm going to sit down now and meditate 15 to 20 minutes, all you're doing is blocking out all of the worrying thoughts about the past. Sorry, not blocking out, that's completely the wrong word to use. Instead of thinking about the past or mm. worrying about the future, you're focusing on your breath or something like that. Whatever it is that you're focusing on, it's some kind of sensory input that's keeping you in the present moment. And we bang on and on about be present, be present, be present, but it's nothing, there's nothing special about being present other than when you are present. It's the absence of past, you know, being constantly yeah. preoccupied with the past and the future. And I'm certainly someone who's thought for a long time that meditations for new age hippies, people have spent too long traveling in, a, you know, in India or whatever, and it's all just a bunch of yoga hippie stuff. But I'm totally convinced by the, um, by the latest research where, so it's got to the stage where in 2015, um, uh, scientists uh, did a meta-analysis of nearly 20 different studies investigating the benefits or otherwise of, of meditation through neuroscience studies mm -hmm. and they concluded in that meta-analysis published in Nature Reviews Neuroscience which is a very top level kind of journal, very highly regarded mindfulness meditation is, is good for humans' physical and mental health which perhaps won't come as a surprise but the kicker for me was and their cognitive performance. Mm -hmm. So if you take it from the perspective of your average you know, business person who's so busy you know, juggling work life and, and, and family life and maybe, God forbid, maybe even a social life, you know, but there's just no time. They might not be motivated to do meditation in order to change the parts of the brain, in order to get all these benefits, if it's just for their physical and mental health because quite often people put their work and their family ahead of their own needs yeah. but if you tell them that it, it will improve your cognitive performance so whether you're at home or at work that investment, not waste of time that investment of 15 to 20 minutes mm -hmm. each and every day and it's got to be daily or your brain won't bother making the requisite changes it, it, it improves your cognitive performances, so whether it's critical decision making, mm. whether it's innovation, whether it's juggling uh, very important social interaction matters like mending, not burning bridges uh, by, by, by snapping at people mm -hmm. or, or healing a, a burnt bridge, you know, building yeah. a new one with someone. To have that extra capacity, that extra cognitive potential, meditation is an investment. You don't have to go away to Tibet for three years. I'm talking about wherever you are, 10 to 15 minutes uh, per day minimum. And if you get more, you get a greater benefit. So, so it's like the number one thing you're recommending. Yeah, no, it's just, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's not even new. No. Buddha's been telling us this for two and a half thousand years. It's just for me as a scientist, yes. I wasn't interested mm. in Buddha, you know? Mm. Then, so for me personally, it was my last book where I rediscovered this, the, these Buddhist ancient Buddhist concepts through a neuroscientific sorry an analysis of the latest neuroscience relevant to the seven deadly sins who'd have thought <laughs> do you know what I mean so the science of sin was all about alright so Pope Gregory the Great came up with this idea back in 6 AD let's simplify the sins let's let's like sorry six, not 6 AD 6th century AD um, 
Let's, uh, there's too many sins, people can't you know, keep them all in their head. Let's keep it to a simple seven, which incidentally is the capacity of working memory. Seven items plus or minus two across the world, mm-hmm. roughly there or thereabouts. That was a George A. Miller paper from 1956 that pointed that out. So in some ways, Pope Gregory the Great preempted George A. Miller by, you know, like over a thousand years, so good on him. But anyway, so, so he was worried about the fate of Christian souls, um, not George A. Miller, Pope Gregory the Great. Um, and, 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 but I was thinking, well, I'm an atheist, I don't really believe in Christianity, but maybe he was onto something. Maybe those seven temptations, those seven habits... Maybe there's something in that, that regardless of your background, where in the world you're born, what you believe in, maybe all humans suffer with those seven types of behaviour. And the way I saw it as a scientist was, in the extreme, those seven things might um, kind of... In the extreme, they might end up causing antisocial outcomes. Mm -hmm. So that person will end up being shunned by their community. And social isolation is really bad for physical and mental health. So... So it's a slightly convoluted story, but we need all seven of those behaviours in, in, in moderation mm. uh, because if we were to abolish any of the seven of them, then mm. things would go horribly wrong for humanity. Like, imagine abolishing lust entirely. We'd never reproduce. Gluttony, it helps our ancestors get through periods of food scarcity because they're gluttonous behaviour. Opportunism, when there's lots to eat, it means you can tuck away fat under your skin. So there's advantages in a moderation for all those seven behaviours, but in the extreme, they cause problems. And so looking at the neuroscience that was relevant to pride, to envy, to sloth, to wrath, to all these different things, um, I found that this same brain area kept uh, you know, cropping up again and again and again. And, and it's uh, part of the brain we've, we've already mentioned, but the anterior cingulate cortex, there's, there's a sort of upper part of it, the dorsal part, mm-hmm. um, it always lit up, whether it was narcissists responding to uh, social rejection, whether it was... Um, you know, experiments where people wind each other up by giving each other stronger and stronger electric shocks. They could measure the amount of retribution that person wanted to give back in a tit-for-tat exchange by how much they cranked up the voltage. And the more they wanted to exact revenge, the more this part of the brain became active. Like it, There was actually a positive correlation between the, the, the degree of revenge sought and the amount of activation in that brain area. So this is the brain area where meditation, you know, meditation experts have this super highway to that area to dampen it down. Yes. And I concluded in that book, I basically told you the whole book now, so you to read it. <laughs> but um, the, the, a lot of those extremes of antisocial behaviour seem to come from a place of social pain. Because yeah. this brain area is involved in processing physical pain, social pain, anxiety, feeling disconcerted, all of these mm-hmm. kind of things. And so it, I was like... I was just gobsmacked. I was like, oh my God, so the conclusion of my book is going to be Buddha was right. <laughs> Suffering is inevitable. Mm. You can't switch this brain air off entirely. It would be bad for your, for your life outcomes if, if you did do that. Mm. No, one wants, no one wants to ablate the DACC, trust me. Because it's a sensor that helps you navigate the social world. You know, you yes. need it. But when it's over-responsive, it leads to huge problems. Uh, it makes people ill. Um, and so... I don't know, like, even as, a, even as a, a sort of atheistic person, my mum says, never say atheist, always say agnostic, but I'm, I'm an atheist, I'm a scientist, for God's sake. Oh, look at that hypocrisy, I said, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, so, so the upshot is, um, I found myself thinking, hmm, Christianity got it right. Simplify it to seven things that can people remember, 
keep an eye on those seven because the list of naughty human behaviours is endless. Those are the main culprits of social unrest. And then the takeaway point is of most uh, re- global religions is, is you need to foster communities with strong ties so that people feel like they belong. Yeah. And then they're unlikely for their experience of emotional pain to get to the point where they start behaving like an utter asshole to everyone around them. In the working context, in the social context, those people who are the nastiest people you know, they're in pain. And if you think of that, if you think, what is their DACC doing when they're behaving so abominably? It, it, it basically leaves you, logically, to the only course of action is compassion. You, you can dissolve all of that anger and frustration and venom that you feel when you want to avenge the, mm. the, the social slight that that person you know, committed against you in a public place in front of your peers. And you have to go, no, this poor person is suffering horribly and it means that you suffer less if you're yes. in that sort of compassionate, sympathetic mindset. And it means the other person doesn't get the satisfaction of winding you up in a way that <laughs> you know, might otherwise get... Yeah. It's a win-win-win. Yes. And, and, and it means that you are more likely to treat the problem as cause rather than treating the, prob- the symptoms mm. of, of what's causing it. The symptoms are the abominable behaviour. The cause is there's something that's gone on in that person's history or in yeah. the last week, either at home or at work, that's just making their, their internal life a place of turmoil, you know? So for me, the whole seven deadly sins thing, forget the afterlife. As far as I'm concerned, it didn't bother me um, dying, dying, yeah. Not existing, it didn't bother me before mm. I was born. Mm. So why in the world would it bother me after I'm gone? Like, I, I don't care about the afterlife at all. I'm all about making a heaven of life on earth. And that's why, in terms of, you know, where do you guide people towards the best aspects of neuroplasticity? I go to meditation yeah. because it's not just going to help them uh, improve their physical, mental health and cognitive performance. It's, it's going to have all these other benefits as well yeah. that spin off from that um, in terms of promoting social harmony. Um, and then the flip side of the neuroplasticity story is be careful how much you use your technology because if you regularly, intensively over long periods of time constantly twitching to pick up your smartphone every time there's a, a break in the list of things you have to do, you're squandering all this time and energy and brain adaptation to adapt yes. yourself to, what, checking social media notifications. It's, mm. it, people just don't stop and think, is mm. this helping me? Mm. They become a slave to very beautifully wrought algorithms mm. that are designed specifically to entrain more and more intensive engagement. So if you don't put in some kind of mm. checks and balances to diminish Silicon Valley's hold over the tendrils of your brain, then you're screwed. Because it's very compelling, isn't it? I mean, people are compelled. To Every time I get on any type of transport, you know, public transport, last night on the way back from football, what was the girl doing on the way back from her shift and God knows what she did? Playing Candy Crush. A game that is occupying and gives you little regular bursts of dopamine, giving you a sense of progress and satisfaction. And to my knowledge, it does absolutely no benefit. Like that investment of time yields zero benefit. And you'd be so much better off reading a novel. Yes. You'd be so much better off staring into space and just thinking about your day. Just contemplating. Yes. yes. But everyone's in this... Because tech is like the ultimate... Pres- well, basically, in the sloth chapter of The Seven Deadly Sins... I, t- I take it out hard on the on the on the tech companies because mm. they are promoting sloth. Every single one of the seven deadly sins has been exploited for profit over the last, well, probably forever, but certainly over the last century. 
uh, more and more and more, just squeezing more money out of those temptations and frittering away our precious free time on bullshit activities. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I say bullshit because it's, it makes me angry. It's so, to me as a neuroscientist, it's so flagrantly obvious what's happening. But to the world, the average consumer who's sort of just, you know, as I do, so the other side of me is a consumer who went fritters time away on TV series or whatever. It's just, I don't, mm. I don't, I don't, the apps are so, the, the feedback loop with apps is so tight. Yes. From my knowledge of addiction, I'm wary of that stuff, yeah. so I stay away from it. But in, in other regards, I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the seven skills for the future podcast there are all sorts of things you can do to boost each of the seven skills if you want more ideas you can buy the book seven skills for the future you can also go online to our website unimenta and join as a member and you'll be able to access more resources ideas and free downloads if you have a question you want to ask on these podcasts get in touch through instagram at seven skills for the future or on twitter and facebook at unimenta And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice.